Part two of Washington and the Riddle of Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Armaments, the Futility of Mere Limitation. Washington, November eight. It would seem that the peculiar circumstances of its meeting demand that the Washington Conference should begin with a foregone futility the discussion of the limitation of armaments and of the restrictions of warfare in certain directions while nations are still to remain sovereign and free to make war and while there exists no final and conclusive court of decision for international disputes except warfare a number of people do really seem to believe that we can go on with all the various states of the earth still as sovereign and independent of each other as wild beasts in a jungle with no common rule and no common law, and yet that we can contrive it that they will agree to make war only in a mild and mitigated fashion, after due notice, and according to an approved set of regulations. Such ideas are quite seriously entertained, and they are futile and dangerous ideas. A committee of the London League of Nations Union, for example, has been debating with the utmost gravity whether the use of poison gas and the sinking of neutral ships to enforce a blockade should be permitted, and whether all modern developments in warfare should not be abolished. The feasibility of preventing secret preparations and the advantages of surprise were also considered. It is as if warfare was a game. It is a little difficult to reason respectfully against that sort of project one is moved rather to add helpful suggestions in the same vein. As, for example, that no hostilities shall be allowed to begin or continue, except in the presence of a League of Nations referee, who shall be marked plainly on the chest and pants with the Red Cross of Geneva, and who, for the convenience of aircraft, shall carry an open sunshade similarly adorned. He shall be furnished with a powerful whistle, or hand-trumpet, audible above the noise of modern artillery, and military operations shall be at once arrested when this whistle is blown. Contravention of the rules laid down by the League of Nations shall be penalized according to the gravity of the offense, with penalties ranging from, let us say, an hour's free bombardment of the offender's position to the entire forces of the enemy being addressed very severely by the referee and ordered off the field. In the event of either combatant winning the war, outright by illegitimate means, it might further be provided that such combatant should submit to a humiliating peace, just as if the war had been lost. Unhappily, war is not a game, but the grimmest of realities, and no power on earth exists to prevent a nation which is fighting for existence against another nation from resorting to any expedient however unfair, cruel and barbarous, to enforce victory or avert disaster. Success justifies every expedient in warfare, and you cannot prevent that being so. A nation, hoping to win and afterward make friends with its enemy, or solicitous of the approval of some powerful neutral, may conceivably refrain from effective but objectionable expedients but that is a voluntary and strategic restraint. The fact remains that war is an ultimate and illimitable thing. A war that can be controlled is a war that could have been stopped or prevented. 
If our race can really bar the use of poison gas, it can bar the use of any kind of weapon. It is indeed easier to enforce peace altogether than any lesser limitation of war. But it is argued that this much may be true nevertheless, that if the nations of the world will agree beforehand, and not to prepare for particular sorts of war, or if they will agree to reduce their military and naval equipment to a minimum, that this will operate powerfully in preventing contraventions, and in a phase of popular excitement arresting the rush toward war. The only objection to this admirable proposal is that no power which has desires or rights that can only be satisfied or defended, so far as it knows, by war, will ever enter into such a disarmament agreement in good faith. Of course, countries contemplating war and having no serious intention of disarming effectually will enter quite readily into conferences upon disarmament, but they will do so partly because of the excellent propaganda value of such a participation, and mainly because of the chance it gives them of some restriction which will hamper a possible antagonist much more than it will hamper themselves. For instance, Japan would probably be very pleased to reduce her military expenditure to quite small figures if the United States reduced theirs to the same amount, because the cost per head of maintaining soldiers under arms is much less in Japan than in America, and she would be still more ready to restrict naval armament to ships with a radius of action of two thousand miles or less, because that would give her a free hand with China and the Philippines. That sort of haggling was going on between Britain and Germany at The Hague, at intervals before the Great War. Neither party believed in the peaceful intentions of the other, nor regarded these negotiations as anything but strategic moves. And as things were in Europe, it was difficult to regard them in any other way. No, the limitation of armaments, quite as much as the mitigation of warfare, is impossible until war has been made impossible, and then the complete extinction of armaments follows without discussion, and war can only be made impossible when the powers of the world have done what the thirteen original states of American Union found they had to do after their independence was won, and that is, set up a common law and rule over themselves. Such a project is a monstrously difficult one, no doubt and it flies in the face of great masses of patriotic cant, and of natural prejudices, and natural suspicion, but it is a thing that can be done. It is the only thing that can be done to avert the destruction of civilization through war and war preparation. Disarmament and the limitation of warfare without such a merging of sovereignty look, at the first glance, easier and more modest proposals, but they suffer from the fatal defect of absolute impracticability. They are things that cannot be made working realities. A world that could effectually disarm would be a world already at one, and disarmament would be of no importance whatever. Given stable international relations, the world would put aside its armaments as naturally as a man takes off his coat in winter on entering a warm house and, as a previous article has pointed out, wars, preparations for war, and the threat of war are only the more striking aspect of human disunion at the present time. The smashing up of the world's currency system, and the progressive paralysis of industry that follows on that, is a much more immediate disaster. 
that is rushing upon us. This war talk between Japan and America may end as abruptly as the snarling of two dogs overtaken by a flood. There may not be another great war after all, because both in Japan and America social disruption may come first. Upon financial and economic questions the powers of the earth must get together very quickly now, or perish. The signs get more imperative every day, and if they get together upon these common issues, then they will have little reason or excuse for not taking up the merely international issues at the same time. There is a curious exaggeration of respect for patriotism and patriotic excesses in all these projects for disarmament and the mitigation of warfare. We have to consider patriotic susceptibilities. That is the stereotyped formula of objection to the plain necessity of overriding the present barbaric sovereignty of separate states by a world rule and a world law protecting the common interests of the common people of the world. In practice, these patriotic susceptibilities will often be found to resolve themselves into nothing more formidable than the conceit and self-importance of some foreign office official. In general, they are little more than a snarling suspiciousness of foreign people. Most people are patriotically excitable. It is in our human nature. But that no more excuses this excessive deference to patriotism than it would excuse a complete tolerance of boozing and of filthy vices and drunken and lustful outrages, because we are all more or less susceptible to thirst and desire. And while there is all this deference for the most ramshackle and impromptu of nationalisms, there is a complete disregard of the influence and of the respect due to one of the greatest and most concentrated interests of our modern world, the finance, the science, the experts, the labor, often very specialized and highly skilled, of the armament and munitions and associated trades and industries. So far as I can ascertain, the advocates of what I may call mere disarmament propose to scrap this mass of interests more or less completely, to put its tremendous array of factories, arsenals, dockyards, and so forth out of action, to obliterate its wide-reaching net of financial relationships, to break up its carefully gathered staffs, and to pour all its labor, its trained engineers and sailors and gunners, and so forth, into the great flood of unemployment, into which our civilization is already sinking and they do not seem to grasp how subtle, various, and effective the resistance of this great complex of capable human beings to any such treatment is likely to be. In my supply of League of Nations literature, I find only two intimations of this real obstacle to the world commonweal. One is a suggestion that there should be no private enterprise in the production of war material at all, and the other that armament concerns shall not own newspapers. As a socialist, I am charmed by the former proposal, which would, in effect, nationalize, among others, the iron and steel and chemical industries. But as a practical man, I have to confess that the organization of no existing state is yet at the level of efficiency necessary if the transfer is to be a hopeful one. And so far as the newspaper restriction goes, it would surely pass the wit of man to devise rules that would prevent a great banking combination from controlling armament firms on the one hand, while it financed newspapers on the other. 
Yet the fact remains that this great complex of interests, round and about the armaments interest, is the most real of all the oppositions to a world federation. It supplies substance, direction, and immediate rewards to the frothy emotions of patriotism. It rules by dividing us, and it realizes that its existence in its present form is conditional upon the continuance of our suspicions and divisions. It does not positively want or seek war, but it wants a continuing expectation of and preparation for war. On the other hand, its ruling intelligences must be coming to understand that in the end it cannot escape sharing in the economic and social smashdown to which we are all now sliding so rapidly. It is too high a type of organization to be altogether blind and obdurate. It will not, of course, be represented officially at Washington for what it is, but in the form of pseudo-patriotic, naval, military, and financial experts, it will be better represented than any other side of human nature. One of the most interesting things to do at the conference will be to watch its activities. How much can we common men ask for and hope for from this great power? Self-extinction is too much, even if it were desirable. But it is reasonable to demand a deflection of its activities to meet the urgent needs of our present dangers. We do not want the extinction of this great body of business, metallurgical, chemical, engineering, and disciplined activities, but we do want its rapid diversion from all too easily attained destructive ends to creative purposes now. A world peace scheme that does not open out an immediate prospect for the release of financial and engineering energy upon worldwide undertakings is a hopeless peace scheme. Enterprise must out. Were this world one federated state concerned about our common welfare, there would be no overwhelming difficulty in canalizing all this force now spent upon armament in the direction of improving transport and communications generally into the making of great bridges, tunnels, and the like, into the rebuilding of our cities upon better lines, into the irrigation and fertilization of the earth's deserts, and so forth. The way to world peace lies not in fighting and destroying the armament interests, but in turning them to world service. But to do such a thing requires a united financial and economic effort. It cannot be done nationally by little groups of patriots all scheming against one another. It must be big business for world interests, unencumbered by national frontiers, or it is impossible. All these considerations, you see, converge on the conclusion that there is no solution of the problem of war, no possibility of a world recovery, no possibility of arresting the rapid disintegration of our civilization, except a Pax Mundi, a federated world control, sufficiently authoritative to keep any single nation in order, and sufficiently coherent to express a world idea. We need an effective world association of nations, to use President Harding's phrase, or we shall perish. And even in this fantastic dream of mere disarmament, of a world of little independent states, all sovereign, all competing against each other, and all carrying on a mean financial and commercial warfare against each other, to the common impoverishment, all standing in the way of any large modern spirited handling of modern needs, 
yet all remaining magically disarmed and never making actual war on each other even if this dream were possible it is still utterly detestable more detestable even than our present dangers and miseries for if there are any things in life worse than pain fear and destruction they are boredom pettiness and inanity and such would be the quality of such a world however much the diplomatists at washington may seek to ignore the fact may fence their discussion with narrowly phrased agenda and rule this that and the other vital aspect outside the scope of the conference the fact remains that there is no way out no way of escape for mankind from the monstrous miseries and far more monstrous dangers of the present time except an organized international cooperation based upon a frank and bold resolve to turn men's minds from ancient jealousies and animosities to the common aims and the common future of our race if the washington conference cannot rise to the level of that idea then it were better that the conference never gathered together end of part two